What is God asking of you? What does the Bible say about his expectations? In this season of Fast, Pray, Give, we'll dig deeper into God's word and learn how we can live that out in our everyday lives. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Said, what did he say? The attendant asked what kind of car we had. I told him it was a Chrysler. 
He wanted to know what uh, he wanted to know where they were going. The husband said, "We're heading to Nashville." What did he say? Asked the wife. I told him we're going to Nashville. The attendant asked, "Where are you coming from?" Arizona. I said. What did he say? I told him we're from Arizona. He asked. The attendant said, "Arizona. I used to know a woman there." She was the meanest, hardest, bitterest, coldest woman I've ever known in all my life. What did he say? The wife asked. I think he knows your mother. The husband said. I think. <laughs> Very serious. Very serious. When you read Revelation, there should be no joking. <laughs> the spirit of Jezebel. She is the hardest, the bitterest, the coldest, the meanest woman I've ever known. The spirit of Jezebel. The spirit of Jezebel will not come off that way. The spirit of Jezebel will come off as the smoothest, the sweetest, the kindest, the most sensual, the most pleasing, and the most comfortable spirit the world has to offer. And we're going to talk about that here this morning. The first church that uh, the letter is written to from John, as he speaks, uh, the, as Jesus Christ speaks through him, is to the church of Ephesus. And Ephesus is commended for taking a stand against false teachers, right? And then we get to the church at Pergamum, which is warned about allowing some of these false teachings to be amongst those sitting in the crowd. But the reason Thyatira gets such a, a harsh rebuke is because they have moved beyond allowing these false teachers to sit amongst them, but they are actually allowing them on the stage. They are allowing them to preach from the churches in Thyatira. And so Jesus says, I have these eyes of fire. Whenever I hear this, and growing up I hear this, I always picture Superman. Remember when Superman, you get like, just burn, or maybe Cyclops or X-Men. He's got these eyes of fire, and they do more than just burn, but they can see through the facades that we put up. Right? They can see past the things we want other people to see. And he says, I, he says of himself, I, the Son of God, have eyes of fire to see past your garbage. Your garbage is for the state. I have to use that word. The part of you that, that you think is so good, the part of you that you press nicely for other people to see, I see past it. I see past the struggle. I see when someone asks you how your fast was going, you said, good, good, good. You ate 18 donuts this week. I see that. But you're going to pretend like it's all good. Just say, I'm struggling. I ate 18 donuts this week, and my fast was from donuts. Right? He has eyes that burn through people's pretenses and disguises. How often during the day do you catch yourself trying to fool other people with how you're doing? How often are you really struggling, but you realize they don't really care, they're just being polite, so you're not going to open up to them about what's really going on? And the problem is we do that enough with strangers that when it comes time to people who really love us and are invested in us, we sometimes carry the same facade with them. And when I'm doing good, I'm all right. Right? Yeah, it's not good. I thought about that. I said hi to a lot of you already. I shook hands. We had a whole first service. I need to be honest. I know I look like I have it together, but I'm still bloated and tired this morning. You should know that. Man, that feels good. Now you know what Jesus knows about me. Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4.13, you can just jot it down if you don't have time to turn there. There is no creature hidden from his sight, 
but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Nothing we do is hidden from Him. Now, what I'm setting up here is I'm setting up this idea and this thought that there is the spirit, the spirit of Jezebel. I'm going to talk more about that and why this church came to me and why I chose to preach our revelation in this series on fasting, praying, and giving. And I hope you'll see that here in a minute and what the Lord has been showing me this week through my meetings and, and where I took my fast this week. And so, um, when it says there is nothing hidden from His sight, I want to make sure that it's clear. That whether you believe that He is God Almighty or not, does not delineate whether or not what you do is hidden from Him or not. Here we go. It then says that his feet are like fine brass. Right? What does that mean? Brass was the hardest metal they knew of at this time, and so it is often used in Scripture to speak of judgment. And so what he's saying is, I know you look good. I know you put on the facade of someone who has it all together. I know you are pretending to be spiritual in the things that you do and the life that you live. But with my eyes of fire that pierce through the lies, I come with feet of brass and I will bring judgment against you. Again, is he speaking to the unbeliever? Is he speaking to the pagan? Is he speaking to the person who has not given their life to him? No. He is speaking to the church. To you and me. That's who this letter in Revelation is to. The church in Asia. The church is in Asia. A good friend of ours here at the church gave me a book for Christmas that I finally began to crack open this week, and I think it's the Lord's timing and how things work, right? As I give up stuff in the midst of my fasting, I replace it with things that are more Christ-centered, and this book has just been incredible. The book, if you wish to go out and get it, it's called Orthodoxy by D.K. Chesterton. It is incredibly difficult to read. It is, as one blog post writer put it, uh, like going through a jungle that is filled with diamonds and jewels, but you must flash through the jungle to find them. And it is tough to read. It's written in 1908, and uh, G.K. Chesterton's British, so he has that, unfortunately, going for him. But, um, <laughs> take that, Britain. And so, keep raising here, so we're okay. And uh, so, this is a quote from him, and I've got a few quotes from him because I could not help but read it and be so drawn and so passionately stirred up as the Lord began to show me exactly what the spirit of Jezebel and how it takes hold of his believer. So this is the quote, and you can just listen to it here. But he's going to talk about the figure of Christ for a moment. Just as Christ described himself as blazing eyes and feet like brass. Listen to this. The tremendous figure which fills the Gospels towers in this respect, as in every other, that above all thinkers, whoever has thought themselves tall, his pathos was natural and almost casual. That means his countenance. The Stoics, ancient and modern, the Stoics, both ancient and modern, were proud of concealing their tears. He never concealed his tears. He filled them plainly on his open face at any daily sight, such as the far sight of his native city, yet he concealed something. Solemn supermen and imperial diplomat, diplomats are proud of restraining their anger, but he didn't restrain his anger. He flung furniture down the front steps of the temple and asked men how they expected to escape the damnation of hell, yet he restrained something. I say it with reverence, 
there was in that shattering personality a thread that must be called shyness. There was something that he hid from all men when he went up to the mountain to pray. There was something that he covered constantly by abrupt silence or impetuous isolation. There was some one thing that was too great for God to show us when he walked upon this earth. And I have sometimes fancied that it was his mirth, his means, his laughter, or his joy. Think about that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and James. The stories of Christ, the stories of his teaching, the stories of his kindness, his compassion, his anger, his sadness. Do you think of the verse where it says Jesus doubled over in laughter? Jesus was cracking up. We know he's the author of joy. We know he's the author of laughter. And yet I love that it says here that G.K. Chesterton is saying, I fancy that perhaps what it was about my God that was too great for us to be able to view of him in human form was his joy or his laughter. And so when he went before the Lord in solitude, was a time that he would express joy and laughter before his father. There's something about the God of the Bible that no other religion or anti-religion There is a personal relationship. There is a personal interest in your life. In each one of our lives, there is a personal interest. In verse 19, it says, I know your work, Thyatira, your love, your service, your faith, your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first, meaning you have grown, you've gotten better in these things. Nevertheless, I have a few things again. So a long list of positive things are given to the church. And so in many ways, what the church is doing was very good. It's an impressive list. Let's look at it. Work means that they were actively attending the needs of their community. Right? They were doing things. They weren't just coming and showing up and leaving. They were doing good works amongst the community. They had an agape love for people. They were genuinely loving others. They, they met the needs of those uh, who were downtrodden or oppressed. They had service, he says. They had faith. They believed in God. And lastly, they had a patience. It was a killing cheerfulness to them. You've got to be thinking at this point, my goodness, that's incredible. If I had a church that was doing all of that, could it really be doing any bad? I mean, that's really amazing. I'd love if we did just one of them. I'm just kidding. We do all of them in spades and nothing wrong here. I like my church. No, that's not true. You're about to find that out. But most impressive, they were growing and increasing in these things. They were increasing in them. So how could there be any condemnation? How is there room for condemnation? Second Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up from themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to things. Here, here we go. The roller coaster ride is about to. We've been climbing, and now we're about to go down. Spirit of Jezebel. The spirit of Je- Jezebel creeps in so slowly, so secretly, and so quietly. 
creeps into each one of our hearts in different ways. For some of us, it's materialism. For some of us, it's fame, it's idolatry. For some of us, it's sexuality. For some of us, it's money, it's power. It creeps in so much. And you can be sitting here saying, I have none of those things. That makes it even worse. Because when you don't have them, guess what you want? Then. And what happens is, is you can be this Christian. You can be this on fire, redeemed, changed life for the Lord. And then all of these things, the spirit of Jezebel begins to come in. And you were at one point doing things as unto the Lord. You were at one point doing things out of a selfless nature. But somewhere along the road, you no longer could endure doing it for that reason. And our itching ears began to need something a little more. And so we begin to turn to teaching and doctrine that begin to speak to all of us. My need. What about me? I've given so much. And the Lord is speaking for me this year. This was a difficult year. What about me? I'm tired about hearing how I have to give to the Lord. I'm tired of hearing about how I've got to lay down my own wants and needs. And if he said it would happen. It's no different in the church in Thyatira or a church in San Francisco. That spirit is alive and well. Christ never said, I will crush the spirit. He said, I will crush you if you follow the spirit. Right? You guys read the same scripture I read, right? He doesn't think he's going to crush the spirit. He leaves the spirit. This idea of monotony. That's what happens. We get bored of the church, we get bored of the songs, we get bored of the pastor, we get bored of the people, we get bored of the seats we were in. Let's take it up. Let's go somewhere new. Oh, I like the way this guy preaches. I like what he's saying. I like how uplifted I feel when I leave. I like the worship. I like the style. I like the haircut. I like the colors they chose. By the way, these are all exact reasons I have heard in my years of ministry for the church. I like the children's ministry. I like this. Did you ever think about maybe getting involved in the place you were at? No, because then I couldn't enjoy it. Then I have to work. I don't need it to be work. Watch this. D.K. Chesterton on the paradox of Christianity says this. Because children have abounding vitality because they are in spirit, fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged, and they always say, do it again. Do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he or she is nearly dead. We understand that, don't we, parents? Grandparents, you really did it, I assume. You've already done it once, and you're like, oh my gosh, here we go again. So the other night before I read this, I was putting the kids to bed, and I would go to bed and then read this. And as I put him into bed, my son has a bunk bed in his room. And he's like, Dad, Dad, you got to see this. Dad, Dad, he's been calling me for like three minutes. I go in there and he's like, you got to see this. This is incredible. Unbelievable. So he goes up to his bed, does a handstand. His head is on the bed. His feet are touching the ceiling. And then he lifts his hands. He's like, Dad, you see this? He's just wearing his little whitey tidy. He's like, Dad, 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 look at this. And then he starts to spin. Dad, Dad, the whole time. I'm like, I'm standing right here watching you. I see it. And so then my little precious Audrey climbs up and he's like, I want to do that, I want to do that. I'm like, no, it's fine if your brother falls, but you're sweet and precious, so you know. 
And so, no, I want to do it. So I help her. Right? I have my hands around her and I care about her. And, uh, and she's up there and she lifts her hands and she's like, I get it, I get it. So I tickle her. Which now Judas saw, and he's like, oh my gosh, that's a thing. And so he does it again. He says, you got to tickle me. You got to tickle me too. So I tickle him. And then he's like, again. Literally, this goes on for five minutes until I am busy just from having to watch them do it. I'm like, no, we're done. Go to bed. I hate this. And they are so thrilled. Again. Again. But the adult does it until they are dead. For grown-ups. Now listen to this. I love this. So I literally have this situation. I go into my bed, pick up this book, and about two or three paragraphs in, I get to this. For grown-ups are people, for grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes them every daisy separately, and He has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that He has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. I begin to think about that. I put the book down. And I just begin to think about that. Oh, Lord, have I grown weary and tired of monotony because of sin? And then I begin to think of an NBA shooter, right? I grew up playing basketball. I love basketball. Currently, one of the best shooters in the NBA is a man named Steph Curry. Stephen Curry. He's uh, unreal. He can shoot the ball literally from anywhere. He shoots the ball from five feet behind the three point line. Drains him on a regular basis. And they say the beauty of why he is so good is because of repetition. Because whether he's shooting the ball 40 feet from the rim or 10 feet from the rim, he follows the same exact movement. He leaps the same exact height. Everything is identical, and it's why he is so good. But here's what's interesting. Even Steph Curry playing at the highest level and the best of the best in the world for 7 billion people gets tired and grows weary. And what happens is if you watch him play, you'll begin to see that he doesn't jump quite as high. That he doesn't follow through all the way. And so what does the coach do? Pulls him out and gives him a break. He lets him run. And I just began to think about this. And I began to think of the monotony over and over of sitting in this practice uh, gym and just shooting over and over and over and over again. So when it's time to perform, he's ready to perform. But even then, his body will grow weary and tired and he will not be able to perform the same function perfectly. What if, what if our God has the fierceness and freedom to enjoy the beauty of things the way they are? He asked the question in the book, science can tell me the reason behind a blade of grass being green, a rose petal being red, they can tell me the science behind it. It is green because this molecule and this molecule come together and they form green. But it cannot tell me why. It shows me the reason, but it cannot give me the meaning behind green. Why doesn't God change the color of the daisy? It's been thousands of years. Why not change it? Because He made it perfect the first time. And He continues to make it perfect over and over for each generation to enjoy it. 
is the problem. So that was the good things they were doing, the problem. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, church. You allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. That's a pretty big charge, especially after you read the three previous church letters. She's not just in your midst. There's not just some of your members who are listening to her and leading others astray. She stands on your stage and she teaches her life. Now, this woman's name is not Jezebel, but Jezebel is the spirit that Jesus puts upon her as John sends his letter out. There's a symbolic name given to her because of what she represents. So who was Jezebel? Well, let's go back. First Kings 16.33, Jezebel is an Old Testament queen who was married by Ahab. As if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sin of Jeroboam, Ahab took the wife of Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Zidians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Right? This was for God. She led the entire northern kingdom of Israel into idol worship of Baal and away from the worship of Yahweh. A god of fertility whose worship included many immoral and licentious practices. And this is wickedness at its extreme. We're talking about sex with animals, with children, and then murdering them upon the altar. We're talking about stuff so heinous and horrible that this is what the god Bell required, and this is Jezebel's doing in the northern kingdom. She pushed it until it was the religion of the day. She financially supported and provided for more than 800 prophets of Bell. She was mean as a snake and had the country tremble. Look at, you want to know how mean she was? Let me just, I love illustrations. It helps us put a grasp around it. Elijah faced 480 prophets of Baal. Remember on the Mount Carmel? Mm, Carmel. Mount Carmel. He faced, it's Carmel, not Caramel. But my mind still does that. So, he faces 480 of them by himself. Remember? Go ahead. Call your gods to call fire down upon your altar. Nothing happens. They dance for days. They cut themselves. Elijah tosses his with water and floods it. He calls upon the name of the Lord. The Lord comes and consumes everything. What happens when he finds out Jezebel's coming after? He runs like an Olympic speedrunner. The guy gets the heck out of Dodge. I mean, we're talking, you just took on 500 prophets of Baal, but then you heard Jezebel was after you, and it says he feared for his life. And there's a verse where he's crying and it came to God, saying, Oh Lord, don't let her find me. This is Jezebel. And I feel just as uh, Satan has done with sin in our lives, we have taken the spirit of Jezebel as the same sort of flippancy. Just a little TV. Just a little porn, just a little money, just a little cheating. We do not understand the seriousness of the claim that you have allowed the spirit of Jezebel amongst you. They gave her a platform. They tolerated her ministry amongst them. It's been said that there is nothing so absurd that if you say it often enough, People begin to believe it's true. You catch that? There is nothing that I could say that would be so absurd that if I say it often enough, you will believe it's true. 
Like, what if I told you that in 10 years, people will exchange natural relations between one another with robots? You're like, 10 years? <laughs> Isn't that already happening? That, that the mass population in America will seek to exchange a relationship with some man-made robot of some type over another human being. Well, that's absurd. I'll say it long enough, and unfortunately, we already know what's coming to fruition. Two things the Spirit of Jezebel brings into a church. Idolatry and immorality. And so there are two things. Look at this first. Idolatry of ideas. The first is an idolatry of ideas. The good guy God. The God of wishful thinking. The God we would like Him to be. No condemnation, no judgment, no restrictions, no rules. No absolutes, all love, mercy, goodness, and kindness. He's just so special. Then there's the genie God. The genie God gives me whatever I need, whatever I want, whatever I ask of him. And this is my idol of God. This is the spirit of Jezebel that brings this. Ignoring the truth of God and substituting a feeble replacement is the idol. Secondly, is the idolatry of images, status. The allure of worldly power, the allure of money, prestige, being number one matters, and we begin to live for it. Things. Idolatry of images, things, amassing possessions, bigger and better. Every year, our phones and our computers and our TVs get bigger and better. What gets smaller is our wallet. It's almost in a direct correlation. The bigger it gets, the smaller our wallets get. Right? It's a deal. A big TV is not evil. A big phone is evil. That's what it does to your heart. What you sacrifice to get it. It's where you put your affection to have it. Lastly, pleasure, sensuality, the abuse of drugs, appetite, oversleeping, overspending, overdrinking, fanatical allegiances to sports teams, co loyalty, celebrity. This is how the spirit of Jezebel gets in. Are you a Christian first? Or a Cowboys fan first. A Cardinals fan. I can't say Packers. That's obviously you're not a Christian. And then that. Because I know we have a lot of you and you're playing today and my Cardinals didn't even make it. Don't worry about it. Which one? Would your friends, if I came to them and said, is this person a Cowboys fan? I think. Right smack dab in front of me. I love you guys. God loves you too. Um, if I ask people about you, would they definitely know you were a sports team fan, or would they definitely know you love the Lord? What would be their first response? I mean, it's not. It's because of the It's not leap out at you as a naked individual and be like, <laughs> and you're like, no, I'm a Christian. No, it's subtle. I'm going to close with this quote here, and then I got one more because uh, during services, the Lord spoke something to my heart that I think is really interesting. But G.K. Chesterton begins to talk on the case of courage. And this fascinating. This, this, I just sat, put the book down, and actually wept. I could not, never thought of my Lord like this. And so I hope for you it gives you some courage this week in the middle of your fast or whatever you are facing. And then I'll ask the ushers to come forward. He says, take the case of courage. No quality has ever so much addled the brains and tangled the definitions of mere rational sages 
Courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means, now listen, a strong desire to live taking the form of a readiness to die. He that will lose his life to fame shall save it is not a piece of mysticism for saints and heroes. It is a piece of everyday advice for sailors or mountaineers. It might be printed in an alpine guide or a drill book. This paradox is the whole principle of courage. Even if quite earthly or brutal courage, a man cut off by the sea may save his life if he will risk it on this practice. He can only get away from the death by continually stepping within an inch of it. A soldier surrounded by enemies, if he is to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange fearlessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he will be a coward and will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, for then he will be a suicide and will not escape. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference. He must desire life like water and yet drink death like wine. No philosopher, I fancy, has ever expressed this romantic riddle with an adequate lucidity, and I certainly have not done so, but Christianity has done more. It has marked the limits of it in an awful graze of the suicide and the hero, showing the distance between him who dies for the sake of living and him who dies for the sake of dying. See, Jesus Christ did not come to give his life just for the sake of dying, just because he longed to die so badly that he could not wait for it to happen. He does not wish for us to live in such a way that says, I cannot wait to be out of this earth and in heaven where everything's going to be great. Please rebuke that spirit. If it is in you, if you thought it, if you felt it, just rebuke it in the name of the Lord. That is not courage. That is not what Christ came to do. He came that you and I might live. That though we die to our selfish nature, we might live in His selfless nature. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, I just pray that this message, the spirit of Jezebel, the name of the Lord, which feels like it reigns over our country, we just pray in Jesus' name and by His blood that we rebuke it. Lord, we rebuke the spirit of Jezebel. We rebuke the spirit of immorality and idolatry. Lord, as we spend this season in fasting and prayer, Father, may, may we go in, in, in unison together pray against this. May we pray against it in our own souls. May we pray against it, Lord, in our communities and in our churches, Lord God. Father, God, may we not have an apathy towards it. We speak the name of Jesus. In that name, we pray. Right here, just begin to pass out the elements. If you have a relationship with the Lord, we practice an open communion at life point, which means that with that relationship, please feel free to take the two cups and then hang on to them, and we'll partake together. If you don't have that relationship with the Lord yet, well then, guess what? This is the best gift we can give you as a church. And right back here on my left in the back is our prayer room. And if something said today, you said, I want that relationship. I want to know a God like that. I don't want to know a God of courage. Well, then this is your time. Get up and go. 
not going to give a passionate plea. I'm not going to play music that gets too excited. Just get up and go. The Lord will honor that decision more than any other decision you ever make. We have people waiting to pray with you on the way. For the rest of you, if you wish to partake in communion this morning, then take the next few moments to examine your heart. That's what Paul calls us to do. Before we take the bread and the blood of our Christ, we examine our own hearts.
Christianity is the only religion on earth that has felt the omnipotence of God may not be enough. Christianity alone felt that God, to be holy God, must also be a rebel as well as a king. Alone of all creeds, Christianity has added courage to the virtues of their creator. For the only courage worth calling courage must necessarily mean that the soul passes a breaking point, and it does not break. In this, indeed, I approach a matter more dark and awful than it is easy to discuss, and I apologize in advance if any of my phrases fall wrong or seem irreverent, irreverent touching a matter which the greatest saints and thinkers have justly feared to approach. In the terrific tale of the passion, there is a distinct and emotional suggestion that the author of all things, in some unthinkable way, went not only through agony, but through death. But through death. It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. No, but the Lord thy God may tempt himself. And it seems as if this is what happened in Gethsemane. In a garden, Satan tempted man, and in a garden, God tempted God. He passed in some human, superhuman manner through our human horror of pessimism. And when the world shook and the sun was wiped out of heaven, it was not at the crucifixion, but at the cry from the cross. The cry which confessed that God was forsaken. And now that the revolutionists who decreed from all the creeds and a god from all the gods of the world, carefully weighing all the gods of inevitable recurrence and of unalterable power, they will not find another god who has himself been in revolt. Nay, the matter grows too difficult for human speech, but let the atheists themselves do the god. They will find only one divinity who ever uttered their isolation. Only one religion in which God seems for an instant to be an atheist. God, I can apprehend if I would be so willing the wickedness of sin. I can apprehend, Father, how it destroys and rips apart the fabric of my life. Those that I love. And so, Lord, as the church, my prayer is as we go and worship to you, that we would not treat sin as a small thing. That we would not treat sin irreverently as something to be cast aside, but Father, that we would recognize the power it has, and then recognize the power we have over it. Because of your body and your blood, we 